Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. I've called this message Kingdom Investments, and we'll get into that as to why, but let's just read this scripture. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. Turn there. While they were listening to this, so this is, that statement is making a reference to Jesus speaking at Zacchaeus' home and Zacchaeus saying all the things that he would do. You know, he's, all that is going on. Luke says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. So each of the servants was given a mina. A mina was about three months of wages. So it's not a big amount, right? But it was a decent amount as such. Each of the servants, 10 of them, are given a mina. And each of them are given one mina, three months wages. And continuing on, put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more, an eleven-fold increase. Ten more minas from the one. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Or in another way, why didn't you at least put it in the bank and get a little bit of interest for it? Why did you just keep it in a piece of cloth? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. You know, there are three different groups of characters, or at least 
individuals and characters that you can see in this story that Jesus tells. One is the master, this man of noble birth, this, this king. That's how he's described. The second is the subjects, the citizens of the land, the ones who did not want this man to be their king. And then third are the ten servants of the master. Right? So three different groups. But, you know, you read this parable and you think, why does Jesus begin this description? Why does he begin this story with this story or this description of this master's appointment as a king and the people didn't want him and then he slays them? I mean, it, it's like, what's the purpose? Why did he go into this? And for that, we have to take a look at some of the history that is happening in this area and in this context that is behind the text. So we're looking at the text itself and trying to understand what's in the text, but I want to take you to some history that's behind the text. As we've already encountered in the previous chapters in Luke and in the Gospels, there are references to Herod, King Herod, right? When Jesus is born, talks about King Herod having issued the, the census and so they were coming to Bethlehem, jo Joseph's home as such where he was from and they come to Bethlehem and that's where Jesus is born and we have all these stories about Herod. Now Herod that is referenced there is Herod the Great or it's you know the King Herod but this term Herod is sort of like a royal title. It's like the House of Windsor or Rajas or, you know, some, it's a title as such. It's not just a name. So later on in the Bible, we see many other references to Herod. And you read Herod, 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 and you're thinking, how is this same guy still doing all this stuff? Like, you know, he was there when Jesus was born, and now he's here doing this, and then he's there at Jesus' trial, and then later on, Paul is standing before Herod, and I mean, this guy must have lived a long life, right? But it's not the same person. It's a title that's given as such, and Herod the Great, who was mentioned there, you know, and so on, and then what Herod's children, his sons are also referred to as Herod. So in fact, right at the beginning, after we look at Herod the Great, you know, the time of the Christmas story and so on, you know, he's, he's the one who the account is of having killed the babies, the wise men come at that time and so on. But almost immediately after that, he dies and he splits the kingdom amongst his sons. And there are at least three sons that are mentioned in the Bible itself, right? And who have reigned over that place. One of those sons was Herod Archelaus. And so on this map, you'll see here how the, the kingdom was split up, how the area was split up. So that area there in that sort of purplish color is the kingdom that was given to Herod Archelaus, the son. Archelaus. And so you'll see Jerusalem and Jericho and Judea, Samaria, that, you know, pretty large area was given to Archelaus. And then Herod Philip is up on the top, that yellow gold section up on the top there, right? He was another son of Herod, also referred to as Herod. 
right, who had that area up there. And then Herod Antipas is given this area that's in the green, that Galilee region, and then this Perea on this side of the Jordan, of the River Jordan. So when we talk about Jesus being from Galilee and most of his ministry was done in Galilee, it was in the place that Herod Antipas is really ruling over. When we talk about John the Baptist baptizing on this side of the River Jordan, we're talking about John the Baptist baptizing in this area that is ruled by Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is the one who marries his brother's wife, right? And then John the Baptist speaks out against him in that, and Herod Antipas finally has him beheaded. So that's Herod Antipas, Herod Archelaus, Herod Philip, right? At least. Now, what happened is, because Herod the Great, or the, the first king as such, in this Herodian dynasty, in this Herodian kingdom, he's still under the Romans. The Romans were still over this whole place. So Herod is still a, a client king. He is a servant king of the Roman Empire. So when his empire is done, when he dies, even though he is doing this kind of a split amongst his sons, his sons had to go to Rome to get the Roman emperor to approve this appointment. So Herod Archelaus actually went to Rome to get the Caesar's, Caesar Augustus's permission to rule in this way. And when he was about to go to Rome and do all of this, the people in this area, Jerusalem, Jericho, in this Judea and Samaria area, they actually did not want him to be king. So they were actually fighting or rebelling against him. And there was a riot, there was a, there was a, a rebellion as such that took place in the temple at a, this time. And Herod Archelaus had 3,000 Jews slaughtered at that time. Then he goes over and he gets the appointment and he comes back and he's ruling very, with this iron fist kind of thing, very cruel, you know, just as cruel as his father and so on. And you will notice that in the Bible, when it talks about Joseph and Mary fleeing after Herod the Great's time or during the time, the Bible says they fled into Egypt. The angel speaks to Joseph in a dream and says, flee into Egypt. And then when it's time for them to return, in Matthew chapter 2, it talks about the fact that Joseph knew that Herod Archelaus was ruling in Jerusalem and that he was just as cruel as his father. So he doesn't go back to Bethlehem. He goes to Nazareth. And then Jesus is known as a Nazarene. You see how all this history starts to connect? God is orchestrating all these things so that people are moved into all the right places and the prophecies are fulfilled and the things are happening. But Herod Archelaus, who's then ruling in this area, he rules only for about 10 years and then he is removed, he is replaced by a Roman procurator named Pontius Pilate. So by the time we get to Jesus, so this is, you know, all this is happening early, Archelaus, everything else. And then by the time we get to Jesus' trial, 
Jesus appears before Pilate. And then the Bible says, and we'll get to this in Luke, the Bible says that at that time, Herod Antipas was visiting Jerusalem. And when Pilate hears that Jesus is from Galilee, he asks Jesus to be, to be sent to Herod Antipas. You see this? And Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist killed, thinks that John the Baptist has come back to life, that Jesus is John the Baptist. And he says, oh, you know, do a sign for me. Tell me, are you John the Baptist? I mean, he's like trying to find. So these are all the connections that are taking place in the background. Very fascinating, very interesting stuff. But as you read some of these things and you understand it, you say, oh, this is what's going on. So it's not just one Herod. It's all these other Herods. And they're all doing different things. And they're in different places. And they're, you know, reigning over things and so on. And in Luke chapter 13, we had read about, we read about where Jesus says, Herod, He's speaking about Herod Antipas, and he says the fox, and he refers to him that way, right? So all these things are going on. Now, later on, when you read in the book of Acts, you, like I mentioned, you will read about uh, Peter being put into prison by Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson. And then later on, you will hear or read about Paul appearing before Herod Agrippa II, that's the great-grandson. So all this stuff is going on in the background, right? And these people are aware of all of this. So when Jesus speaks and gives this parable, and he says, oh, there's a man who was appointed as king or going to be appointed as king, and then he went to get his appointment, and the people didn't like him. The Jews who are listening to Jesus know exactly what he's talking about. And as I've mentioned before in these parables, Jesus will speak about somebody or something that's very known to the people, very relevant. They, they immediately get what he's talking about. And then he draws a contrast to God. So God is not like Archelaus. God is not a king who is unjust or unfair or who's cruel or who so, but he's drawing a contrast and making this connection and saying, this wicked king that you have here did this to you. He slaughtered the people. He did all this stuff. He went and got an appointment and nobody wanted him as king. And all this happened. Keep in mind that there will come a time when the true king of kings will return for the consummation of his kingdom. And that which was to be received by that king, that which he was supposed to receive, he is gone to receive the appointment of that kingdom. That's sort of what you can think of. And he will return. And when he does, there will be a judgment for those that rejected that king. The wicked king did all of this. The righteous king of kings will do something different, but he's drawing these connections, he's drawing these parallels to say there will be a judgment. And the people who were there, they knew, they understood. Jesus is speaking about these things in these ways. Which is why you must keep in mind that when Jesus stands trial, the Pharisees tell, say, we're crucifying you because you claim to be God, because you claim to be the Messiah because you claim to be this 
king. They go to Caesar, or to, pardon me, to Pilate, and to say, he's trying to overthrow. He's trying to say that he's bigger than Caesar. So you, you understand that that's the context of what's being described here. So these people, these things that are going on, the subjects of the land, this master, this king, all of that. But what does, you know, the, the, the primary focus of this parable is really about the servants and about the miners that they receive and what they did with it. And so what does the master say to the servants? He commends the one who gained 10 more. And he commends the one who gained five more. Well done, you know, good servant. He commends them. And he describes them as having been trustworthy in a very small matter and then rewards them with what seems like a disproportionate reward. They took three months of wages and you know, did something with it and got a return on that investment as such. But he comes back and he says, oh, you, you got 10 minus? Okay, you're in charge of 10 cities. It seems like it's a disproportionate reward. But really, it seems like it was more of a test. It's more of a, of a responsibility and an accountability given to these servants to say, here, I'm giving you this. Let me see what you will do with it. Right? It's not, okay, what you did with it is worth 10 cities. It's what you did with it demonstrates that you will be mindful about this, that you'll be diligent about it, that you'll be disciplined, that you will be seeking to make this investment grow, that, that you will be working hard on my behalf. So that's what he's going after. So the one who brings back 10 minas and the one who brings back five minas are clearly in that mindset, in that way of action, which is what the master is looking for and what he responds to. The one who put the mina in the cloth, you would think, hey, at least he didn't waste it. He didn't go off and spend it. He didn't do something rash with it. He just kept it. He preserved it, right? Isn't that good enough? No, the master was looking for something specific from it. And, the and this servant did not do it. And so he says, what's given to him because he was not responsible with it, because he was not accountable with it, it's going to be taken and given to the person who has demonstrated the maximum accountability, responsibility, diligence, everything else. Right? Because that person can be trusted to grow this thing, to, to increase the investment. Make sense? So, and, and, and you know, listen, you've got to keep remembering why did Jesus tell this parable? The Bible says, Jesus told the parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So there are all these mixed notions amongst the people about Jesus, what he would do once he got into Jerusalem and what the kingdom of God was going to be like. Right? But Jesus draws their focus away from those material considerations and draws their focus to what they should be doing as they await the return of the king and the consummation of the kingdom. He's saying to them, you need to maximize the return of investment of all the resources that the master has placed into your trust. Everything that the master has given you and said, take this, 
put it to work until I return, that's your responsibility. Don't worry about when he's returning. Don't worry about how he will return. Don't worry about what will happen exactly. Be faithful, be trustworthy in the things that I've given you to do. Take those things and maximize the return on the investment. So we, the servants of the Lord and Master Jesus, have been entrusted with the Master's own resources. We are stewards of the resources, not owners. He has asked us to put these resources to work. The question then for us is, what kind of investments can we make so that these resources, these miners, can grow? Right? In the natural, everyone, most everyone, is looking to say, what stocks can I buy? What bonds can I you know, purchase? What can I do so that the income will be maximized so that my investment will grow so that my 401k will grow so that my retirement you know and my pension balance will grow currently everybody's like oh it's all going down everybody's but isn't this the question that we ask in the natural in the world and it's fine it's it's right for us to ask these questions and to pay attention to these things however how much more should we as children of God ask this question about spiritual things? What has the Lord invested in me? What has the Lord given me? How do I maximize the return on this investment? And you know, the way that the Bible speaks about this or responds to that question is counterintuitive from what the world will say. The world says, hold on to what you have. Look for the sure thing. Or take a risk or a gamble on something that you know can, you know, skyrocket and then you get out of it and you do something else. Timing, you know that. I mean, the world has all sorts of answers for how to maximize your return. The way, the way that the Bible speaks to us, it's very counterintuitive. It doesn't, doesn't seem to match what the world will say. So when we think about things that the Bible says, we have to consider how different, how much of a contrast it is to the ways of the world. And I'm going to go through this morning three things, three ways in which we should invest what God has put into our hands, what God has given us as resources, what God has given us as talents, and say, how do we invest those things? How do we invest? So I'm just speaking about three things. There are more things that could be spoken of or that you could see as you continue to study the word of God. The first one is that the Bible essentially tells us to do good. We talked about this even in a couple of weeks ago, and then we've talked about it throughout our series. But in Luke chapter 6, when we were in Luke chapter 6, we went through this section fairly quickly because we were talking about some other points also. I want to go back and read a few verses from Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 37. And it says, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. All advice and statements that seem completely contradictory, right? Why would you do that? You know, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. Meaning if somebody is if taking advantage of you, give them even more, right? Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. 
do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. The point I want to make to you is that it's not even all the details of what's called out here. Right? How do you apply wisdom and discretion and discernment even as you deal with somebody who is doing something wrong? You know, that's not the main point I want to make to you. The point I want to make to you out of reading this scripture and of many other scriptures, from many other scriptures, is that when you do good, the return is the reward of the Lord. He will reward you. Right? The world says, hold to what you have. Do something with your money. You know, try to make it work in these ways. God says, do good. Do good works. Give of yourself in terms of serving others. Do good for others even when you don't get anything back in return. And your return, your reward will be great. You want maximum return on your investment? Do good. Do good works. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, it tells us we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Right? Connected to what we're talking about. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Jesus' statement to the disciples in Luke 18, just a few weeks ago when we were looking at Luke 18, verses 29 and 30, Jesus says to them, to the disciples, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. What's Jesus saying? You do the right things. You do the good things. You be obedient to me. You continue to invest in the things that I have asked you to do and your return, your reward will be great. Right? In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23 to 24, the Bible says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. point that I want to keep stating here is that as we do good works, which the Bible calls us to do, we are serving the Lord Jesus and there is going to be a return on that investment of our time and our talents and all of the things that we're putting in, our effort, our strength, we put it into that, God will have the return on it, okay? But I read all of this in Luke chapter 6 through verse 37. Verse 38 says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure 
pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So the first thing that I wanted to talk about is that when we invest, or how we invest with maximum return is to do good works. And the second way in which we invest so as to get maximum returns is to give. Again, sounds totally counterintuitive. It doesn't sound like what the world will tell you, right? You gotta buy the right stock, not give away, not give to somebody else, not give to the local church, not give for the work of the ministry, not give to a missionary. That seems counterintuitive. But the Bible says, give, and it will be given to you. You want 11-fold return? Give. Give. The Bible is not promising you something. And it's not saying to you, you give 10, God will give 100, you can spend 90. It's not like that. Right? It's not trying to maximize your, your wealth built, you know, and, you know, I mean, that's not the goal. The goal is not so that you will have great material wealth. I'm not saying you won't, that God doesn't bless us with wealth or material resources or you know, conveniences of many kinds. I'm not saying that he doesn't bless us and, and provide all that. I'm saying that that's not the focus. The focus is that we would give and give generously as the Lord leads us and exercise faith that the Lord will return. By the way, whenever I go to this verse, I hear Ron Camoli singing in my head. You know, give, and it will come back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, right? I mean, that, I mean, you should be hearing this word in your mind to say, oh God, I'm not doing this for the sake of the world. I'm not doing it according to the wisdom of the world. I'm going to give as your word tells me. And by the way, I, I, I mean, I've talked about this in previous times and I talk about it when we talk about biblical money management, we talk about it in different contexts. I believe that the place that you must give to primarily is the local church because that is the place in which God has called you to be connected to and to be fed and to, to give, to serve the people around you. And therefore, you give of your time, you give of your talent, you give of your prayer, you give of your uh, you know, efforts in other ways, and you're giving of your finances. That's the sort of most tangible thing that we have as a material sort of resource in our hands today. We don't barter with grain. We don't have you know, livestock that we can bring and say, here's my cow. But we can give our material resources, our finances, and we give generously. There's always going to be needs. You know, and, and Jesus said, the poor will always be with you. There will always be some need. There will always be something. There will always be a Macy that breaks down. There will always be something that needs to be spent money, you know, that money has to be spent on. That's there. That's going to be there. And I'm not saying, and I'm not talking about this message this morning because we're doing a fundraising campaign. That's not the point. The point that I want to give to you or make to you is make giving a lifestyle. I started earning money when I was 21 years old. That was the first time in my life that I started to earn an income, right? I didn't, I didn't work as a teen before that. When I was 21 years old, I got out of college, you know, had a bachelor's degree, started a job. And I, I worked for only half that year because I graduated in May. I started work in June, so I worked for half that year. I have my financial records starting from that period, 1988 onwards, 
through now, right? All of these years. I, I can tell you exactly how much money I have given every single year. Before we were married and after we have been married now 26 years, we have given. And we have never, ever regretted those decisions. We've made plenty of mistakes with our finances. I've made plenty of mistakes with my finances. But I can tell you very confidently that after all these years of giving systematically, you know, deliberately, setting up that apart, didn't matter what, setting it apart, doing that, you know, there has been a great and clear touch of God and the blessing of God and the will of God and the wisdom of God in that. Right? So I encourage you that you would give. Give in such a way that you will have a return. Because the Bible says, when you give willingly, cheerfully, generously, and according to the leading and direction of the Holy Spirit, not according to the prompting or pressure of men, the Lord will do the rest. He will supply your needs. He'll take care of stuff. He'll do the things that are necessary. Now, do it with a budget. Do it with wisdom. Do it with all the things that you need to. Don't live in debt. Don't, don't overspend. You know, do all that. But give. All right. That brings me to this last point. And even though the first two things that I'm talking about are all related to people, this last point that I want to make is more deliberate and much more focused on how we interact with people and what we invest into them for one specific purpose, to win souls. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30, the fruit of righteousness, or the fruit of the righteous, is a tree of life. And he who wins souls is wise. You want to be wise? You want to manage things well? You want to have a return on your investment? You want to see maximized returns? You want to have 11-fold return? Win souls. Tell people about Jesus. And this statement, when I talk about winning souls, it could also have just said, make disciples. Because it's not just a matter of just saying something. Don't, it's not just, I put a big sticker on the side of my car that says, believe in Jesus. Hey, I've done my job. Okay, God, now bless me. You know, no, that's not the point. I'm not talking about just declaring something. I'm talking about the fact that we would interact with people and make disciples, that we would invest into their lives for the purpose of them coming to know Jesus and to live in Jesus and to grow in Jesus and to be found in eternity with Jesus, that we would invest into souls, into people's lives. In 1 Thessalonians, Chapter 2, Paul is speaking about how he's interacting with these people. And, and in most of the time that Paul is speaking to the believers, you know, we've been praying through the, the prayers of Paul, and Jizzy has been leading in our uh, uh, nightly prayer meetings, you know, we've been praying through the prayers of Paul. And, and so many of those prayers are just like, oh, I, I long for you. I, I pray for you. I'm so glad when I think of you. Every time I think about you, I give thanks. I, you know, my, my faith is built up or I'm encouraged. And he's always got these very personal statements about these people that he's interacting with, that he's investing in, right? And he speaks to them in that way. 
And he says, oh, you know, even though we had conflicts and we had all these things, we came and we spoke to you. And, we, and, in, and in verse uh, 3 of this, uh, verse 4, rather, he says, we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Is this language of, of a person who's just sort of, we say, no, this is a person who's investing into these people's lives. He's, he's eager to see them built up and to become disciples of Christ. He's investing his time. He says, brothers, we worked night and day we, so that we would not be a burden to you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. We were blameless before you in our conduct. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Oh, what words. I mean, what, what passion. Now keep in mind, Paul was the very same person who with the mandate or the, the approval of the Sanhedrin, of the religious leaders, was killing Christians. He was out to find them and to imprison them and to put them to death. And now here he is saying these things about them, about his interaction with them. That's an investment that we can make. We can do good works. We can give generously. But the Bible calls us to invest into people. To care about their well-being. To say, oh God, I want to see this person built up. I want to see them maturing as a disciple of Christ. I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to tell them about Jesus. I'm going to speak the gospel of God. I'm not going to be a burden to them. But I want to see them built up in you, Lord Jesus. I want to see them being a disciple of Jesus. I want to invest in this person. Because you know, as Paul is describing all this in 1 Thessalonians, he concludes that section in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, by saying this, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it for you are our glory and our joy. You want to return on your investment? Invest in people. Because when Christ returns, he's got a crown for you based on who you've been talking to. Jesus gives us all sorts of crowns, the Bible says. We have a crown of inheritance of eternal life in Christ Jesus just because we've come to know him as our savior. And if you don't know him as your savior, if you have never accepted the Lord Jesus, oh, <laughs> make a change. Do something different. Come to him and to say, oh, Lord God, I need to know you. I need to have you in my life. And I need to receive this crown, this inheritance of eternal life. But you know, in addition to that, he says, the Bible says he rewards us. He rewards us according to our good works. 
He rewards us and he returns to us that which we have given. But he also, like jewels in the crown, like a crown of righteousness or of reward, he says, these people that I've invested in, they are my crown, they are my glory, they are my joy. At the end of your life, how many crowns, how many jewels, how many things can you speak of like that? You want to speak about your bank account at the end of your life? Or do you want to be able to say, oh, Lord God, I thank you that I'm ready to come to you. Or Jesus is returning. You say, oh, Lord God, I'm so glad you're returning. You know why? Because I know that I've invested into the lives of people. I've given into the lives of people. And I thank you, Lord, that you will return that. That you will have that return on that investment. You know, the Bible is so beautiful for our lives. It helps us to understand that we can respond to the Lord in ways that are simple. They're not easy. They're simple. Jesus doesn't tell us to do something complicated. He's saying, care for that person. Go tell them about Jesus. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Make disciples. Help them to understand how they can do the same. How they can also go and tell somebody else. Raise up people who will raise up others. Do it. Invest. Go for it. And so we respond by maximizing the return on our investments. We say, oh God, I want to do kingdom investing. I want, to do, I want to be an expert in the God market, not the stock market. I want to be an expert in the investments of God. I want to know how to do something that will maximize the return. You know, I was, um, there was a time in my life where somebody wanted me to invest in a business opportunity. And he said to me, you know, if you do this, and we do this together, we can get 20% return. And I had no interest in doing this with this person. There was a whole bunch of other stuff going on. And I said, you know what? I'm actually investing in something that's got a 100% return. And he said, what do you mean? How, do, where is that, how is that possible? What is it? What do you do? And I said, I'm, I'm investing in the things of God. And he said, oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but you know, this is what the world will offer you. And this is what God offers you. Not just even 100%. 11-fold. Oh, God. Thank you that that's how we can respond. And so this morning, I want to challenge you that we not just respond to the word of God, not just say, oh God, I want to maximize my returns. Particularly, I want to win souls. I want to see people made disciples of Christ. I want to see them growing in the Lord. My own children, my own family members, my own people that I associate with, I want to see them becoming disciples of Christ and maturing as disciples of Christ. But Lord, I want to apply and I want to look for a specific opportunity this week, this month, for the rest of my life. I want, to, I want to look for specific opportunities to do good. To do good when there's no response or no expectation of return from that person or that situation, but only from you, Lord, because I'm serving you. I want to do good in a way that I'm not counting the cost. Oh, okay, okay, it's not hurting me. Okay, I'll do. No, I want to do good. And I want to give. 
Think about it. Ask the Lord. We have plenty of needs in the church, but ask the Lord, what can I give to you? What can I give, Lord, that would be a generous giving, a cheerful giving, a willful giving? What can I give? How can I give? And what can I do to tell somebody about Jesus? How do I tell somebody about Jesus? What should I do, Lord? Help me to apply. Help me to tell someone that they too may come to know you. That they too will understand that they can be in the kingdom of God. That they too can make kingdom investments. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your completeness of your word to us. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that as we invest in the things of God, in the kingdom of God, in the investments of God, oh, Lord God, there is an incredible return. There is an incredible blessing. There is an incredible reward. And we thank you, Lord, that we never have to look at the circumstances of the world. We simply have to be confident in God. So we thank you, Lord, for this word this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the parable of the minors. We thank you, Lord, that you spoke this to say that if we think the kingdom of God is coming soon, then we need to be doing what the master desires. We need to be putting what you have entrusted in our hands to work so that there will be a return on it when you come back. Help us to do that, Lord, faithfully, diligently, and in a manner that is trustworthy. We ask it in Jesus' name.